Welcome to the February 2023 edition of UCLA Anderson's Forecast Direct podcast. I'm Leo Feller. I'm a senior economist at the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And my guest this month is Professor David Dorn. David is the UBS Professor of Globalization and Labor Markets at the University of Zurich, and he is currently a visiting professor at UC Berkeley. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. So David, you have a series of papers on the China shock. And can we start perhaps with your first paper? What is the China shock and what was its immediate effect on the US labor market? During the 1990s and the first decade of the new century in the 2000s, there was a massive expansion of world trade in goods. And at the center of that expansion was the enormous transformation of China that went from being a uh, essentially inward-looking country uh, that was not integrated into world trade uh, uh, towards becoming the world's leading exporter of manufactured goods. And as China had this dramatic transformation driven largely by internal uh, reforms in China, uh, this generated a rapid change in trade conditions for other countries such as the United States. And because that transformation, that rapid increase in Chinese uh, competition uh, became unexpected, we tend to call that a shock, hence the term China shock. So that meant concretely that uh, within just uh, uh, under two decades, uh, the amount of goods that the United States or also other wealthy countries in Europe, for instance, would import from China increased absolutely dramatically. And as a consequence, many manufacturing industries in the US could no longer compete uh, with uh, the cheaper products from uh, competing uh, Chinese providers. And that then had massive impacts on the US labor markets, on different geographic communities in the US, as well as on uh, uh, social uh, outcomes and political outcomes in the United States. So how do you separate the effect of imports from China from the effects of automation and technology on the US labor market? These seem to be happening at about the same time. You're talking about the 1990s, the 2000s, uh, at the same time that we're getting this boom in uh, internet uh, and web technology, how do you separate the effect of China from that kind of automation and, uh, and internet technology? You are right that these developments uh, tended to concur in time, but interestingly, they did not all that strongly overlap in uh, geographic space. So there were some places in the United States uh, that were specialized, for instance, in furniture manufacturing, uh, where really the big impact was that uh, uh, furniture manufacturing, just like textile manufacturing, became extremely heavily uh, 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 competing with, uh, with Chinese imports. Then you had other industries uh, um, that uh, were facing a lot of technological change, but oftentimes those happen to be located in different places. So in separate work, um, um, David Otter and I have measured the exposure to um, 
technological change and automation by estimating to the extent to which locations are specialized in so-called routine tasks in types of occupations and work that could be potentially automated. And interestingly, uh, also somewhat to our surprise, uh, that exposure to automation and the exposure to Chinese trade was not all that strongly correlated. And that allows us to estimate these effects separately from each other. So to make it more concrete, what are some of the geographic areas that had the greatest impact from uh, import competition from China? So um, an important thing to realize is that the import competition from China did not just uh, affect all of US manufacturing in an even way. Uh, of course, when we think about the uh, US manufacturing decline, then maybe the, the first thing that will come to mind for many people is the decline of traditional manufacturing centers uh, in the Midwest, such as uh, the city of Detroit, for instance. But Detroit is actually not a place that has a lot of China exposure because the car industry that is uh, characteristic uh, for Detroit is not an industry that uh, competes all that much directly with China. China. The same holds for industries like steel production, for instance, or, uh, or industrial chemicals. What does compete heavily with China is uh, textile and apparel, is furniture, the production of toys, also the production of home electronics. And uh, one place, for instance, where uh, a lot of that came together uh, would be the central region of North Carolina. Think uh, of, for instance, of North Carolina's capital city of Raleigh. Uh, Raleigh had traditionally a sizable textile industry. They had an important furniture industry. They also had some electronics uh, manufacturing and all of that uh, faced extremely heavy competition from China. Right, that's interesting that you mentioned that. I think, you know, Providence, Rhode Island as another geographic area where you have a lot of toy manufacturing. Right, that also face a lot of uh, exposure from Chinese imports. That, so, is, that is true. And in, and in addition, uh, New England did have a traditional textile industry as well. And so some remainders of that textile industry were still around in the, in the 1990s, 2000s. And a lot of that has uh, suffered quite considerably. So you also have another paper that looks at the impacts on, uh, you know, politics on, uh, especially looking at the 2016 elections, what was the impact of import competition from China on the rise of populism and on the sense of discontent uh, among blue collar workers? Well, here perhaps I first have to explain why at all one might uh, wonder whether these uh, trade effects affect uh, local political outcomes. Uh, I would think that uh, uh, these effects operate primarily through the impacts of these, uh, of these trade shocks on the labor market. So what we found in uh, our initial research now some 10 years ago is that uh, in uh, those regions of the US that faced, that had the kind of industries that faced a lot of Chinese import competition, again, Raleigh, North Carolina or Providence, Rhode Island being examples, in those places, we saw that uh, employment rates decline, 
uh, we saw that uh, there is a corresponding increase in the fraction of people that are unemployed or have left the labor force entirely. And we also saw that incomes in those places decline. And these income declines were only to a modest extent compensated by additional uh, outpayments of government transfers. And so then once you're in a situation where you have um, lower employment rates and lower incomes, then a lot of other uh, uh, developments are triggered by that. Um, one research paper that I actually enjoy it, uh, a lot is uh, uh, a study uh, that uh, uh, you did with uh, Mina Senses on, uh, on the provision of public goods in those regions, which uh, uh, brought uh, the, the additional clever idea that once you have businesses struggling in those places, uh, then also the local communities uh, uh, will get uh, less tax incomes, partly because property values fall and then uh, there is less revenue from property taxes. That in turn means that uh, these local communities might struggle more uh, to provide uh, public services, like maybe good public parks, uh, museums, uh, good schools, etc. Um, uh, you showed also that there was a, an increase in criminality. And I think once you see this whole complex of outcomes, right, more poverty, more unemployment, more criminality, worse local services, um, uh, or in additional work, uh, even more uh, more uh, mortality from drug-related deaths, then it just becomes clear that even though manufacturing accounts for just a rather small fraction of U.S. employment, today it's like uh, less than one in 10 working-age people working in that sector, it's still the case for the people in those heavily affected communities, a lot of these outcomes will affect all people or many people there. And so then these, uh, uh, these residents of these uh, import uh, facing locations, uh, they understandably uh, uh, probably felt discontent with the way that things are going in their locations. And uh, we have seen that uh, uh, voters in these locations have become more prone to elect uh, um, people to Congress who come from either the far left or the far right of the political spectrum, with overall the effect on the far right being the stronger one. And, uh, and that includes uh, that uh, residents of these places have been more likely than residents of other locations to vote for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. You mentioned uh, in one of your papers, one of your more recent papers, that the effect of the China shock plateaus around 2010. So we have a decade to study the longer term effects of import competition from China. And as you bring up, not just import competition, but how this might affect labor markets, how this might affect public service provision, how this might affect voting behavior. Just to clarify for, you know, for our listeners, what do you mean when you say that the effect of the China shock has plateaued? And then what are some of the more persistent effects that you see stemming from the China shock? The China shock is really a huge transformation of international trade in goods. Um, from the late 1980s, 
into the early 2010s, the total value of goods that are traded across uh, national borders worldwide has roughly doubled in, uh, in, in volume. So this is in a short period, a massive expansion of trade, again with China as an important driver. But then in the early 2010s, uh, one sees that suddenly that expansion of world trade uh, starts to slow down a lot. And indeed, um, the, uh, the trade relationship uh, between the United States and China no longer sees this massive increase in, uh, in US imports. Um, there are two explanations for that. One is that uh, these, uh, this whole uh, situation of that China shock clearly had some features of a catch-up effect. So once China uh, moved towards a more capitalist system, uh, uh, economic system that was more open to foreign trade, then the Chinese just had an enormous potential to catch up with the rest of the world. Uh, it's important to realize actually that in the late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, around the time when the communists took over uh, in Beijing, China was actually a relatively wealthy country by international comparison. So it was uh, uh, just narrowly in the top third of richest countries in the world by GDP per capita. And then due, after a few decades of communist rule, China had actually fallen from the top third to the bottom third of countries in terms of uh, uh, wealth per capita. And that means it started at that point in the 1980s from a very low place and could easily then move up, partly, for instance, as uh, my uh, former student Lei Li has shown, partly because the Chinese also started to import a lot of foreign machinery. So they could uh, uh, um, improve their productivity tremendously by um, retrofitting their factories with uh, much, much better, much, much more modern machines. And so then what happens is, of course, at some point, Chinese production methods start to look more like those in the West, right? They're also now using the same modern machines that the Americans or the Germans will be using. And at that point, it becomes actually harder to, uh, to you know, still improve. Um, the second thing is also that uh, um, around uh, uh, the early 2010s, uh, the current uh, uh, leader of China, uh, uh, Xi, was, uh, was taking over uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Beijing. And he has clearly had an influence of slowing down these sort of market-oriented um, uh, economic reforms, in some cases even reverting them. And that means that uh, the, the whole sort of enormous export-oriented uh, growth of China has slowed down a lot. And now, as you say, even that this import competition is no longer growing a lot, one might sort of think that those locations in the United States that have suffered during the 1990s and the first decade of the 2000s are now recuperating from, uh, from uh, 
the sometimes adverse effects of, uh, of these uh, structural transformations. But to our surprise, we see that even nearly a decade after uh, this China shock starts to wind down, uh, these uh, uh, locations still have uh, clearly elevated the rates of, uh, of uh, non-employment, uh, lower wages. So, so it is the case that the, the scarring effects in the labor market are, are quite long lasting. You actually found something pretty interesting, which was a differential outmigration in the long run in response to some of the, the shocks that these areas experienced. Can you talk about who moves in search of better labor market opportunities and who tends to stay behind in some of these areas that are uh, affected from import competition from China? Yes, you touch on a very interesting topic that uh, really came a bit as a surprise also to many uh, labor economists because um, I would say some, some 15 years ago, the, the prevailing view among uh, labor economists was that at least in the United States, um, workers would be very geographically mobile. So there was a widespread view that uh, if you lose your job, in North Carolina, then you just move to Boston or uh, uh, to San Francisco or to some other place where maybe uh, uh, there is still growth. And uh, we showed that at least for this China trade shock, there just aren't very strong uh, mobility responses of workers. And even when we go now, uh, you know, 10 years past these shocks, the, the population responses are still quite muted. Uh, the groups, though, that are most likely to respond is on the one hand, um, uh, the younger people that might not yet be that, um, uh, you know, uh, involved in a, in a local job, in a local house, etc. cetera. Um, and also you see more mobility of, uh, of uh, foreigners. Um, this is, a, this is a finding that um, uh, Brian Kovac and, uh, and, uh, and a colleague have uh, studied before. Uh, there seems to be some evidence that in the United States, local shocks are sometimes mitigated by foreign immigrants, you know, that are not very tied to a particular location in the US and are much more willing to move somewhere else. But one thing we found interestingly is that this adjustment via the foreign population has not been that effective uh, in case of the China trade shock, simply because these uh, locations affected by that import competition were actually locations that don't have all that many foreigners. So there, there just simply was not a ready stock of people that could uh, equilibrate uh, these local outcomes. I think the common denominator here, I've seen some work on this, uh, is mom, right? So there's some research looking at how the typical American lives only 18 miles away. The typical adult, uh, American adult, uh, lives only 18 miles away from their mother. And that's because mothers provide, you know, aside from loving and, you know, caring for you, uh, they provide this very important service, which is caring for your children. Uh, and so childcare being as expensive as it is in the U.S. makes it very hard for people to leave their family networks 
and relocate in search of a job. And to your point, perhaps immigrants who don't have these networks to begin with, whose mothers you know, don't live that close to them already because they're immigrants into the US, uh, have an easier time moving. Um, another one of my, uh, my favorite papers, or a series of papers actually, uh, is Leah Bustan, who talks about streets of gold uh, and has this book on American immigration. And she points out that immigrants are just much more mobile in the early generations. But then as they become more settled in the US, they become less mobile over time because then they have these family networks. So that perhaps that's actually one of the things that's holding uh, you know, our mobility back uh, is that you know, childcare is expensive. Uh, you know, our mothers uh, provide this useful service. Um, and, you know, and so over time we become more resistant to moving uh, to try to adjust some of these labor market shocks. Yes, I, I think this, this is a very plausible hypothesis to me. And uh, there, are, there are researchers in Europe that have argued that uh, Southern European countries, um, uh, which traditionally have extremely strong family bonds, uh, mm. have that effect even much more strongly, right? That people sort of would really extremely rarely move away from uh, their parents, their relatives, uh, their friends, and that because of that, these labor markets really are uh, very static and uh, have a hard time adjusting. Do you think competition from China has run its course? Are we seeing competition reverse, given concerns about supply chain resiliency, given concerns about global instability, where we want to have manufacturing of things like semiconductor chips uh, located in the US. Uh, do you think we're going to see a little bit of a reversal uh, and you know, kind of an undoing of the China shock uh, over the next uh, few decades? Well, um, I, don't, I don't really expect a large-scale reversal. Uh, you have formulated your question more prudently and said a little bit of a reversal, so a little <laughs> that uh, I would not exclude. Um, but you know, what's important to realize, of course, is uh, you know as bad as uh, this China shock has been for some U.S. locations with all the job loss that was involved and all the hardship that that created for the workers that lost their jobs and their families and their communities. Uh, it's also important to realize that ultimately that job loss meant that the US was simply no longer competitive in certain industries, right? And one thing you see is that uh, um, when uh, uh, under under Donald Trump, the U.S. then started to impose tariffs on Chinese imports with the expressed goal of bringing back jobs to the United States. Then uh, uh, some of the impact of that was simply that the U.S. maybe imported less of certain goods from China, but started more to import, for instance, from Vietnam. And my view is that production of sort of, uh, you know, mass production of very standardized, low technology goods, think of like t-shirts, for instance, that type of production, I think, simply will not return to uh, 
uh, high-income countries being the United States or, or Great Britain or, or other countries in Western Europe. I mean, that production will, if anything, just move around uh, in different Asian countries um, or, or other places that uh, have a comparative advantage in having a low-cost labor force. Um, what's more of a question, of course, is uh, what the impact will be of um, the trade conflict that I think has much more of a political and strategic background, right? That the United States has become concerned about the fact that China actually is now in certain areas of technology, a very serious competitor, right? And in certain like uh, internet-based technologies, for instance, might even be uh, leading. Uh, that is a, is a threat to uh, uh, the U.S. dominant in, in, uh, in technology that the U.S. for a long time had with all the Silicon Valley business. And it is, of course, then also to some extent a threat for, uh, for U.S. military dominance, right? Because many of these technologies also have some potential uh, military uses. And so, what is now happening, of course, is that the U.S. has, uh, under the under the Biden administration, really taken a course of saying we want to keep China out of certain technologies. And I think, in in terms of the trade relationship, it's really now more these political considerations that uh, that uh, will determine how uh, this trade relationship develops further. But as far as the United States is concerned, I'm not really seeing that much of a future of, you know, mass production manufacturing just coming back in, in uh, to a very large extent. Well, no, and given that we're at, you know, 3.4% unemployment, uh, with, you know, unemployment rates so much what we had in the 1960s, it's hard to imagine even having the bandwidth to absorb uh, you know, more manufacturing employment and something that's relatively lower skilled, like routine manufacturing of t-shirts. Uh, David, thank you so much for, for joining us. And thank you also for this fascinating series of papers. Uh, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about reading your work is that you start with the China shock, and then you weave this entire, uh, you know, well-researched narrative of what was the impact of the China shock? Was it automation? What was the impact on uh, voting behavior? What has been the long-term impact uh, you know, as the, the China shock has plateaued? Uh, and so really fascinating to see kind of this compilation of your work. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, David.